Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Jonah, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, we need his help, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that has been given to us, this treasured possession of your people, that we might be reminded who you are, what you have done, Lord, that is living and active, that it is available to us today to change us. Father, grant to us your spirit that we might have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive all that you have for us today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it feels like it's been forever since I've been here, even though it's only been kind of every other week. Uh, But we are continuing our way through the book of Jonah. It is going to just be four sermons. So we are in chapter three of four today. And as we've had some guest preachers along the way, I thought it might be helpful to go back a little bit and to remind ourselves of what's going on in the book of Jonah. Now, I began our series by reminding us that Jonah is kind of an ironic book. The prophet who runs away from God's word, who goes down and down and down again. And a book from a prophet that here will only have five Hebrew words, eight English words, of all that the Lord said. His proclamation is not the focus of this book. It is really this narrative story about a wayward prophet, a second chance prophet. And in some ways, these narrative passages, they also act in a similar way to a parable. Now, it's not a parable because a parable is a story that's been made up. Right, you have all the parables of Jesus. Those are fictional stories to illustrate a point. But all of God's word, and especially the narrative passages, 
They play a similar role in that uh, they tell us a story that reveals to us things about who God is, his character, how he works. And so we've seen that begin to unfold as he has interrupted Jonah's plan of escape. He has appointed the fish to swallow him up. And as uh, we look at chapter 3 today, we go back one verse. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. It is a story we're all familiar with, and it tells us many things about Jonah, but it tells us many more things about who God is, who the God that Jonah serves is, how he interacts with his people, with the nations around his people. Another way to think of it, without using the word parable, is that Jonah is a sign. Jesus himself spoke of Jonah in this way in Matthew chapter 12. Certainly are welcome to turn there if you'd like. He talked about how he was going to be a sign like the sign of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12. If I had a bookmark, would be there much quicker. <clears throat> you don't have to feel bad anytime you can't find a passage when your pastor takes this long. Matthew chapter 12 particularly around verse 41, but beginning in verse 38. The scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, saying, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When we think about a sign, what we mean by a sign is that it points to something greater than what we see. It's a sign that signifies something greater. Jonah the man who had to be thrown off, sacrificed off of the ship in order to save the sailors, is a sign of a Savior who has to die for the sake of the people. You see how he points ahead to something greater? Jonah, the man who died, at least metaphorically, to the bottom of the sea and was in the belly of the fish for three days, was resurrected. By all accounts, given a second chance, spewed back onto the land. It's a sign of the other Savior who would come, who would descend and resurrect. Jonah points us beyond himself to something far greater as we look at the details of the story. He's a sign of a savior. He is a sign of sinners being restored. He is a sign of a resurrected savior going to God's enemies. Remember, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he hates the Assyrians. All of Israel hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were wicked people. We even see in the verses here highlighted the violence of their hands. They were notorious for the way in which they would go and kill their enemies. 
Oftentimes, as Assyria would take over cities, unlike other nations who would preserve cities, preserve all the good things so that they could inherit them, Assyria would go and bring utter destruction. They had elaborate, wicked, violent, torturous methods to kill people. And they hated the people of God. And the feeling was mutual. And so Jonah being called to go to Nineveh was painful to think about. Because Jonah knew that God might have mercy. That they might hear God's word and change. Indeed, that's what we see in our passage today. That's why when we read these words from Matthew chapter 12, that the people of Nineveh will rise up in the resurrection to judge the generation when Jesus lived because they only had Jonah who pointed to the time when Jesus was going to come, the far greater Jonah that they refused to listen to. But let us go to our narrative today. Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to it again. That message that I tell you. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Here we have this example of the second chance prophet These are essentially the same words that were told to us at the beginning of this book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. But the response was 100% different. Instead of fleeing from the presence of the Lord, instead of going and getting on a boat and going as far as he can away from Nineveh, Jonah had changed his mind. He himself had come to a place of repentance. We went through that Last time we were together in Jonah chapter 2, this prayer that even in his last breath, the Lord heard his prayer from the bottom of the sea. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and delivered him. And here Jonah appears to have changed his tune, no longer fleeing, but instead obeying. God has had mercy on Jonah, this sinful prophet who should have known better, who should have gotten it right the first time. Now, if you know the story well, next week when we get to chapter 4, we'll see that Jonah still doesn't quite have it all together. He isn't fully obedient. He isn't fully faithful. He isn't fully in line with what God is going to do. He has his own idea. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Who here has repented of a sin and not, but a moment later, gone back to that very sin? Perhaps we do good for a day or a week, a month, or even a year. It is a cycle we all follow through. It's why we confess our sins every week, not just once a year. In fact, our confession of sin here in this worship service is supposed to be a pattern for us to use in our daily lives. So it will be with Jonah. But we see here some hope. He has understood his folly. He has been confronted with God's sovereign interruption in his plan. 
and his redirection back to what God had intended. And so Jonah goes, he obeys, he arises, and he makes the journey. Now, if you look at a map, and you wonder what coast Nineveh is on, it is not on a coast. It is quite a journey away from the lark, any body of water. And so Jonah had to travel quite a ways. Perhaps he was even successful in getting some ways away. And so there's a gap here a little bit in time where Jonah had to arise and go. And it took quite some time to get there. And we're told it is a three days journey in breadth. That's not three days to the sea. That's how large the city is in its breadth. A large, sprawling city. I don't know how long it would take to walk from Dilworth to West Fargo. Probably take me more than three days. <laughs> but Nineveh was this significant place. It was the capital city of Assyria. Three days' journey, 600,000 people, which would have been tremendously large at that time. It was the place where the king had his throne. And just one day into the city, right? You think if a prophet is there, he's going to proclaim his message for a number of days and a number of places. And in his first day's journey, he stops and he proclaims to the people. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not a very seeker-sensitive message for Jonah to proclaim. It doesn't see here, at least in these words. Now, this might be an abbreviation of the message of Jonah. But what we don't see here is an appeal that if they change their mind, the Lord will relent. Or that God so loves the Assyrians, if they would just see his love. No, it is a threat of judgment. It is a harsh word. It is a sobering word. But what's important for us to be reminded of is that these types of words that come to God's people. Now, oftentimes when the prophets come, they speak to kings of Israel, kings of Judah, the people of God. And they say similar things. The Lord is going to raise up your enemies in judgment. Indeed, he raises up Assyria not much longer after this. Just a generation later to come and attack the people of God. But these threats of judgment, they are always conditional. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the Lord's proclamation of judgment is always a call to repent, always a call to turn, always a call to respond like these men. Like verse 9 says to us, who knows, God may turn and relent. There was no promise of God's turning and relenting. But this was the message. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Think of the time of testing throughout Scripture. Forty days. The number 40 is always associated with this Temptation with this testing, with this time of waiting, 
The people of God wandering through the wilderness for 40 years failed their test and were struck down before the promised land was granted to the faithful few. Forty days, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and came out victorious. Forty days here, a time of testing to see how Nineveh will respond to God's proclamation of judgment. It kind of reminds you of the hellfire and brimstone type preaching guys on the corner of a street. Perhaps they're holding a sign, repent. Perhaps they're just reading from the Bible apocalyptic passages. Maybe they're saying things in a much nicer way than Jonah appears to do here. We see those people and we often cringe a little bit. And we think, what good is that doing? What good is Jonah doing in Nineveh? Just proclaiming some hateful message. That's the thing about God's work. The thing about revivals. Indeed, this might have been the greatest revival in the history of the ancient world. The simplicity of the message. The clarity of who's in charge. But ultimately, the work of God in the hearts of people drawing them back to repentance. The people of Nineveh are called to 40 days of testing. And we're told what we must know is absolutely true for everybody who hears God's word and is received. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. It doesn't matter what the message was. It doesn't matter how palatable it was. It doesn't matter how harsh it was. This man, Jonah, who has just spewed out of a fish after being off the face of the planet for three days, as far as anybody else was concerned, has showed up to this city. The enemies of the people of God, this great, powerful, vicious, murderous city, and proclaims God's judgment, and they believe him. Now we know that belief, faith, is a gift of God. And so God has caused them to believe, to respond in repentance. How do we know that they repented? Well, we see that they don't only believe, but they act. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is, you know, basically a burlap bag. The worst possible thing you could wear on your body, I imagine. It would be a bit itchy, but the point of it was to show remorse, to show sorrow. To take off your ordinary clothing and to go into mourning. Mourning over your sin. From the greatest of them... To the least of them. Revival was breaking out in Nineveh. 
the street preacher was finally heard. And everybody was weeping in repentance. Not only that, not only did the people respond, but the word reached to the king of Assyria. And he got off of his throne and he took off of his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now, we don't think too highly of our clothing nowadays, but we hear stories about kings, about Joseph and his multicolored coat in the Bible. Those are significant. The clothes that people wore showed their authority. It showed their power. And the king taking off his robe, putting on sackcloth, getting off his throne and sitting in ashes. The juxtaposition of those two places couldn't be further from each other. Instead of being on the throne of authority and judgment, he is in ashes of mourning and humiliation. Instead of wearing the most powerful robe in all of the land, he's dressed like a beggar. Because he believed God and it struck fear into his heart. He knew it must be remedied, that there was one who was far greater than he was, who was seated on a throne higher than his and robed with a robe far more glorious. And he issues a proclamation by my decree. Let no man or beast or herd or flock eat anything. It's just so important. Not even our animals are allowed to eat. And we're going to cover them with sackcloth. We will make it so clear to God that we understand how wicked we have been. We are going to go above and beyond showing how sorry we are. Not only that, not only are we going to do outward things... We're going to stop doing the evil things that we have been doing. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Can you imagine an edict from the king that says all of these things written in all this pompous language? Who knows? Perhaps God will turn and relent. Maybe there's still hope. And they were right. The king was right. They responded by believing God and acting, turning from their sin, being remorseful for the ways in which they have acted. And God relented. God changed his mind about their fate. Now, it's not that God changes. It's not that God wasn't in control or didn't know this was going to happen. But as it came to them, they knew that if they were to have continued in their wickedness, God's judgment was about to be poured out. And in one of the ways in which God condescends his character to us is to speak in these ways. That he had mercy. And they receive his mercy in a way that looks like God relented. That he turned, that he changed his mind. 
because he saw what they did. Now, this passage tells us a lot of things about who God is. We don't want to get too far in the weeds on this idea of God relenting. Because there's something far more important happening in this passage that I want us to land on, to understand, to be reminded of. Remember, Jonah is a sign. This passage tells us about something that happened in the past. About a prophet and some people in some country that we don't know anything about. In a time that we can't even comprehend. But it tells us about a God who continues to act, who doesn't change, who acts the same he does now as he did then. A God who has restored a sinner like Jonah to continue to go. The second chance prophet to hear the word of the Lord again and instead of running to obey to repent of his folly, and to continue on a life of faithfulness. But it's also a sign of God's mercy to his enemies. Remember, Jonah is not just mad that Assyria is a bunch of bad guys. They're bad guys against the people of God, against Yahweh himself, against the temple These are God's enemies. And the whole reason Jonah doesn't want to go is he doesn't want God to have mercy on his enemies. This is a sign of God's grace to his enemies. Isaiah chapter 59. It's a passage you might be familiar with. Verse 1 through 12, 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, and his ear not dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made it made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden your face from him, so that he does not hear you. Oftentimes we think about the enemies of God as being these people out there. The people who don't like the street preacher, the people in these other countries. The people who mock God. It's easy for us to forget that we all began as enemies of God. Romans 5, 8 reminds us that while we were still sinners, not that we were good and somebody died for us, not that we were okay and somebody, but that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while the Assyrians were still the enemies of God's people, he granted them repentance. He sent a prophet to them that they might hear his word and that they might hear and believe and change. That ultimately they might come back in the judgment to judge those who were unfaithful when the greater Jonah would come. Perhaps the point of application is this. Do you have hope for those who are separated from God? I hope we can understand the ways in which we were, by nature, enemies of God, undeserving of his grace and mercy. 
But how many people in our lives have we written off? How many subgroups of people in our country and around the world have we written off? How many people like Jonah are we unwilling to really think about how God might save them? How often do we think we know better than God? The Assyrians, those people in Nineveh, they were hopeless. If there was ever somebody that would have been hopeless, it was them. And here we have the story of this miraculous revival taking place. Beyond that, we have people that perhaps we have hope for. But maybe we doubt whether or not God's able. When we pray, do we have the faith and the trust that God is able to change? When we prayed earlier for those who need God's grace, God's mercy, our loved ones, do we really believe that his word is powerful enough to go and to accomplish what it intended? Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth sprout and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word goes be so shall my word be that goes from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which i purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which i sent it there was no doubt that god's word was going to accomplish exactly what he wanted it to accomplish in the lives of the people of Nineveh there was no doubt that when the word reached the king god would use it to remove him from his throne and put him down in the ashes. That God's mercy might be shown to the nations. This is where our hope must lie. That God is at work, that his word is powerful, that it is possible, that he is the one that will make it come about. And if it doesn't, that was God's will as well. It is hard for us to categorize what might be, how God might act, and that is not our role. That was not the role of Jonah, to decide for God whether or not they, de- they deserve to hear God's word. His call was to be faithful, to go, to proclaim it. Jonah is the sign of restoration, a prophet who had fallen away. He's restored to this ministry. What is the restoration we need in our lives? Perhaps interpersonally, but more importantly to our passage today, where is the restoration we need with God? Do we really believe God's word when it comes to us? Do we really see how heinous our sin truly is? The actions of these people in Nineveh are so illuminating to us. They didn't even have to be told all of the things that they did that were so wicked. They knew. It was immediate to them. It was illuminated to them. As God's word went forth, it was convicting to their hearts, and they knew. 
Where is God convicting our hearts? Where do you know restoration is needed? Where do we need to get off of our thrones and sit ourselves in humility? Where is God's word piercing us? And it's not that it just pierces us and makes us feel bad because this is a sign about a Savior who wasn't merely thrown from a boat and swallowed by a fish. It is a sign of a Savior who was crushed for our sins. Because if we don't see how heinous it is, if we don't mourn and weep over how vile we are, we don't see how gloriously gracious God is to us. We count ourselves among the enemies of God who have been restored, who have been forgiven. Nobody is outside of the grace of God from outward appearances. There's nobody out there who's sinned too much. As God's word goes forth, it will accomplish its purposes. When God's word is proclaimed, do we believe it? That's what this passage is all about. Jonah began to go into the city, and he cried out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Where do we need to believe God today? What needs to be overthrown in our lives? Where do we feel God's judgment against us? Not that we cower in fear, but instead that we cling in gospel hope to our Savior Jesus Christ, who in his body bore our sin. We can bring it nowhere else if we think we are good enough on our own. Then we don't need a Savior We don't believe what God says. But if we believe it, if we know it is true, God has provided a place for us. He's provided a priest for us. He's provided a savior for us that we might not fall under his judgment. And that who knows, God may turn and relent. Indeed, we do know he has sent his son. His son has died and he has been resurrected. He is our hope. May God convict us. May God cause us to believe and turn from our sin today, trusting that Christ can raise us up with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show grace to those who don't deserve it, to Ninevites, and to us. So many years later, a nation so far away, so foreign, so undeserving. Father, help us to see our sin, to weep over it when it comes to mind, and instead to turn to you that we might receive grace. Lord, give us hearts of flesh. Give us your spirit that we might love your law and walk in your ways and overflow in worship because of your kindness and grace to us. May we see our sin for what it is and see our Savior for how glorious he truly is. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.